Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. joined us today. Uh, there are those in auditoriums all over the East Bay joining us as well as those uh, that have joined us online uh, from literally all over the world. So we're glad that you're here for the launch of this series, What Does Love Require? Um, and this, uh, this, these six weekends will build uh, one upon another, almost as if it's six chapters of one book. So if at all possible, uh, don't miss a single one, and if you do need to uh, miss a weekend, do your best to watch online uh, so that you can stay up with what we are uh, teaching. And also, I think uh, a lot of you know that we do a more in-depth discussion on YouTube uh, every uh, week right after we preach. We go into our little studio here, and we tape Beyond Sunday. And so you can go on YouTube, and you can watch that or listen to it. Uh, when you're working out or driving, and it's just a further discussion of uh, what was uh, preached. And we, we, we taped this after I preached uh, already this weekend, and uh, I just got to say it's awesome. Uh, so I did a great job. And uh, so go online, and then you can, you can agree or disagree with that statement. So together we're going to be exploring what Christ intended his church to be. And we're going to ask ourselves how close are we at Cornerstone to Christ's pure uh, intention and direction? And we're going to challenge uh, pretty much everything that we think and everything we're doing that varies uh, in any way from what the early church did and ask ourselves, is that the way it should be? And, uh, and we're especially going to look at what Christ told us to do. We're also going to evaluate some common misconceptions uh, among Christ followers uh, ways of thinking that I believe make their faith in Jesus more fragile than it needs to be. So I think it's going to be a great way for us to launch 2020. And we're going to do that now by opening our Bibles and standing to read something that Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Stand with me to read Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus has just preached uh, what is probably the best sermon in history, and he's already rocked their world because he's he started to redefine everything that they've been believing. And he'll say, well, you heard it said this way your whole life, but now I'm going to tell you something different. And uh, he's going to take the same text and take them to a completely new place in Scripture. And at the very end of it, he says this, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. 
The rain came down and streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we open the scriptures, using them as our guide, as the foundation of our faith. And we ask you in the next six weekends to open these scriptures to us in a fresh way, in a way that will uh, give us an even more solid and robust faith in you, Jesus. We also ask you to make our relationship with you something that our neighbors will observe, how we feel about you, how often we are talking to you, our faith in you, and how we treat each other. And that our neighbors would come in from the cold, that they would be curious and even jealous of uh, what is found within this church. Help us, Lord, to reach them in such a natural way, such a real way, We have nothing to sell. Everything we offer is free. Help us, Lord, to give it away freely. But first, help us to have it for ourselves. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, why don't you sit down and get comfortable? I'm going to talk for a few minutes. And I want to start right back with that comment I made right before we prayed about uh, those moments when a, person's, uh, uh, a person begins to question what they, they believe and their faith start to feel uh, fragile. All too often, someone who's been raised in the church later begins to doubt their faith in Christ when they encounter questions about the Bible or God's character that they really can't um, understand. Uh, it can happen when you, when you have friends who, who didn't grow up in church, or maybe you're you, you go away to university, and a professor uh, just, just starts to question uh, re- all religion. And maybe your friends ask you just normal questions about why you believe in God or the Bible or why you pray. And maybe you really haven't given that enough thought as to, you know, why you do it. You just do it. You've always done it. Uh, but maybe just someone asking the question can, can put you into either a minor or a major crisis of faith reevaluating everything you grew up believing. Now, for most of us, this deconstruction and reconstruction is a very normal thing. It's a part of maturing uh, in Christianity. We come through it just fine. But there are those of us who this launches something that ends up being really fatal to their relationship with God. Because once they doubt one thing and then another, they begin to doubt just about everything. And the next thing you know, the whole thing uh, comes crashing down as they wonder about those hard-to-explain parts of the Bible. For example, what if you grew up in church and your Sunday school teacher uh, talked to you about uh, the creation of the world, and, 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 and they said that, that God created the world, and, and he did it in six days or six time periods, and, and you grow up thinking, yeah, I, I like that. I think that's pretty, pretty cool, and you like the thought of a God creating the world. But then your science teacher, who you really respect, says, well, that's religion, and this is science. And science says that, no, that that didn't happen. And what happened instead were these things. And you begin to think, well, wait a minute. Why does this really intelligent person uh, think something really different than what I've been taught? And what do I do with the Genesis account? Now, unfortunately, 
Some people will take something like the Genesis account and attach it to their relationship with Jesus, even though Jesus never even made believing in the Genesis account at all criteria for following after him. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe the Genesis account. I don't know about six 24-hour days. I think that might be a stretch for me, but I do believe in six periods of time that God created the earth. I believe definitely that God created this earth. I just can't look around and, and, and think that this just uh, happened. Life doesn't work that way, no matter how many millions or billions of years you attach to it. So for me, it, it takes less faith for me to believe in a God than, than to believe in some of these things that are being presented to us by very intelligent people. Uh, but I also have come to realize that my neighbor and, and, and her belief in uh, how the world came about, uh, that has little to do with her being invited to have a relationship with Jesus. All right, so back to the Jenga game, which just became a tiny bit more fragile, but not much. It's fine. But then someone comes along and says, well, what about, what about Noah? You know, you, you got this story in the Bible about this guy and his family that build a boat and get in the boat, and then everything else is destroyed, and the flood covers the earth. You don't really believe that, do you? And you, I go, well, yeah. And they go, well, that's not, that didn't happen. There would be all kinds of geological evidence of that, and there's not. And I, I, I think it's an interesting story. It's, it's actually a crazy story when you think that we decorate our children's nur nurseries with the worst cataclysm that ever happened in the world. <laughs> I mean, no wonder they're crying when they wake up, you know. <laughs> they're not in the boat. But then again, you just start to go, well, yeah, I, I don't know. And you kind of want to change the subject because you really can't explain it. They go, well, as long as we're talking about, you know, your Bible, what about that guy Jonah? You know, he, he gets in a boat and then he, he gets thrown overboard and there just happens to be this huge fish right there that swallows him. And then three days later, it barfs him out on the beach. <laughs> Fascinating story. But it, it reads to me more like a fable than a story. I, I think... I think you should probably throw that one out as well. Now, it's fine as long as I haven't attached my belief in the story of Jonah to my relationship with Jesus. But see, some people have been taught that the Bible is the Bible is the Bible. And so if any of it can be called into question, then maybe all of it can be called into question. So my friend just happens to know a little bit more about the Bible. And they say, well, what about that guy Methuselah? Uh, your Bible says that this guy, Methuselah, lived to be over 900 years old. And you're like, okay. You're like, do you believe that or not? And what about, you know, the Bible itself? You know, I read that the New Testament wasn't written by eyewitnesses, but by people who hundreds of years later wrote those stories in order to, I don't know, bolster a faith that they already had and to kind of, you know, add some facts hundreds of years later. What about that? And if no one ever told you that that's actually not true and the Bible was written by eyewitness accounts, you might start to say, wow, if I can't even believe that, what about uh, Jesus? And they go, well, yeah. And what about the, the Red Sea parting for Moses? He just puts a stick down on the water, and then somehow, some way, the water... Uh, parts And not only is it part, your Bible says that they walked across on dry land. How did that happen? And then later, Joshua does the same thing at the Jordan River. You believe that? Hmm. 
Well, for some of us, it doesn't rattle our faith. It just, our faith is still standing. But uh, I will tell you uh, an issue that has really rattled my faith. And that's the issue of human suffering. Uh, I've traveled the world, uh, different places, and I've seen uh, poverty at levels that are unimaginable. I've, I've seen suffering, even as a pastor, uh, in the wealth of America, where someone has an unresolved issue and um, they just don't die peacefully in their sleep. They die violently after years and years of suffering. And I, I drive away from those scenarios thinking, I don't get it. If I was God, I wouldn't allow that. And these things can cause us to question God. Or maybe we hear about human trafficking. And we say, how could that be? How could, how could God uh, allow a child to be trafficked like that? Or, uh, or we, we hear about maybe a priest that has uh, uh, behaved incredibly inappropriately with children. Or a pastor who has taken advantage of a vulnerable woman in the congregation. Or maybe we have our own just bad experience with church. And, you know, it starts to get kind of shaky. And, you know, and, and, and so, you know, we, we stop going to church. And maybe along with that, we uh, kind of give up on a regular daily prayer life or a relationship with Jesus, which goes okay for us until we go, in, we go into some kind of a crisis where we really, really need the Lord and we really, really need the church, but we've walked away and therefore no one is there. And before you know it, things come crashing down. Our series is designed to talk about that. To talk about how people attach so many things to a simple faith in Jesus Christ. Things that they wouldn't have had to attach. Issues that could be resolved at, in a later conversation or a different time. But they haven't been prepared for that. We're going to do our best to prepare you and to give you a solid faith. A faith that can't easily be shaken. In the next few weekends, we're going to offer you a better version of what it really means to be a Christ follower. I think we can convince you to stop defending events in the Bible that you can't explain. Jesus never called you to defend him or what his Bible says happened. Uh, he called you to go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them everything that he has already taught you. That's your responsibility. Um, and when you think of it, you really only have to hold on to a few true things in order to call yourself a Christian. I mean, in order to call yourself a Christian, what really would you have to believe? Like, what's, what are the non-negotiables? Well, I don't know what yours are, but I'll tell you what mine are. If a person was going to call themselves a Christian, they would have to believe that there is a God. They'd have to say, there's a God out there. In order for them to say, uh, uh, I, I'm a Christian, it would start with, is there a God? And then the second thing would be, uh, is that God Jesus? Is, is, is Jesus the Son of God who came to the earth, the sinless man who lived a perfect life? And then they'd have to, that person would have to look at the teachings of Jesus and say, you know what? I think he's right. I agree with the teachings, and I believe in what Jesus taught. And then that person would have to go to the cross and say, what was that about? 
Was that just a, a good man being executed? Or was that Jesus shedding blood to cover for my sins? And the person would have to say, do I believe that Jesus' death has anything to do with me and my sins? Well, this person is already well on the way to becoming a follower in Christ. The thief on the cross would be one. Who that was, those were his points right there. And that's how he entered into paradise that day. But a person would also have to say, well, what about the resurrection of Christ? Is that just God coming back to prove that what he said was true? Or is there something about that that actually applies to me? And a Christian believes that the death and resurrection of Christ uh, takes care of your death and makes sure that you have a resurrection into eternal life. And then I think the last thing would be uh, just uh, if I repent of my sinful condition and of my sinful actions, um, am I forgiven uh, and can he, can God change me? Friends, I thought about this long and hard and I, I think that's my Jenga pile right there. I think everything, everything else is wonderful but non-essential. And you may add a couple more to yours. You may struggle with what I just said. That's fine. I'm glad that you're struggling with it. I want you to wrestle with it. Your list, your pile might look a little different, but it wouldn't be a stack much higher than that. And look how much harder that is to knock down. When Jesus says the rains come and the winds blow, your house that you have built on the foundation of Jesus and only Jesus will stand. So in the next few weekends, we're going to unpack what it means to be a Christ follower and what it doesn't mean. We're going to open our Bibles, starting with the precious Old Testament, for context. And then we're going to move into the New Testament and explore the behavior and words of Jesus, our Savior. We're going to let the New Testament authors coach us about the Christian faith. We're also going to observe the behavior of the early church. And we're going to ask ourselves, what were they doing that was so different than their Greek and Roman and Jewish neighbors? Uh, and what made their faith so compelling, so inviting? How did this religious cult, birthed on the dusty fringes of the Roman Empire, take over that empire within 300 years without firing a shot? How did this ragtag group, led by a, an uneducated Nazarene rabbi who was crucified as a wannabe king, how did they survive that and then thrive in the face of formidable odds? British author Karen Armstrong, uh, no friend to evangelical Christianity, by the way, sums it up this way. Against all odds, she says, by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. We still do not really understand how this came about. Other scholars agree, Christian and otherwise. It's virtually impossible to explain how Christianity spread like an airborne disease across uh, countries across oceans. There was something about the behavior of these early believers that made this infectious uh, belief also resilient to any religious or political antibiotic. Sandwiched between the Jewish temple and the Roman Empire, the Jesus movement should have been buried right alongside of its founder. But it wasn't. So how did that happen? And most importantly, could it happen again? Could it happen in our world, in our neighborhood, in our time? I believe so. I hope so. 
Another thing we're going to make crystal clear in this series is why the New Testament is called that. Why it's called new. Uh, And I'll just give you a hint. It's because when Jesus came, he was bringing something entirely new. He did not show up with a new version of an old thing or an update of a dusty religion. The New Testament is called the New Testament because Jesus brought something, say it with me, new. And it was the new that made him so attractive to common people and so repulsive to the protectors of everything old. People who were nothing like him liked him. And he liked people who were nothing like him. He was loved by the unrighteous and hated by the self-righteous. And they hated him because they saw him as a threat that he really was to things they would never let go of. They accurately assessed Jesus' message. That he was bringing something new and not a freshening up of the old that they were protecting. They didn't see Jesus as Judaism 2.0. They rightly understood him to be a threat to everything that he held dear. If what he said was true, it was the end of their religion as they knew it. The religion that they controlled and profited from. Now, I was taught in Assembly of God Sunday School, that the Bible is the Bible is the Bible. And that the New Testament is simply an extension of the Old Testament. But those leaders back then would not have agreed with that. They read Jesus more clearly than that. He wasn't claiming to be an extension of anything that they were, that they were promoting. He was introducing something completely new. Let me give you an example. The most effective thing that Jesus said was also the most offensive thing he didn't say. And it's something that we never catch. It's in Matthew's gospel. And if you've read it, you probably didn't even notice it. And you definitely weren't offended by it. It's when he was in one of his heated arguments with them that he he laid it out. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And that really ticked you off, didn't it? You feel like stomping out? No. Well, they went ballistic. Because in Jerusalem and throughout all of Judaism, nothing, no one was greater than the temple. And Jesus was saying that he was. What they figured out was that he was saying that now that he was here, the temple was in his shadow. The Jewish temple. (laughs) Right. Next he's going to say that temple sacrifice is unnecessary. Yeah, he did say that. Blasphemy to say that you're greater than the Jewish temple, the very epicenter of the world. You're greater than the repository of the law that God gave us. You're greater than the place where sin is atoned for. To claim that someone greater than the temple had arrived was to say that the temple was temporary. Which, as it turns out, is what God the Father was saying all along. Let's talk about this temple that supposedly housed the presence of God. And before that, the tabernacle, uh, God's temporary digs. Way back at Sinai, back in Exodus, where Israel was given the law, they were also given something else, something no nation had ever possessed, the presence of God among them. God taking up residence 
uh, with his own. When his presence lifted, the cloud covered them, began to move. They would pack up the tabernacle and pack up their tents and follow the cloud until it stopped and they would set up camp again. This portable God never abandoned them during the entire time they wandered through the wilderness. Even when they were being punished for disobedience, he was still there with them. God with them. Does that remind you something about Christmas? God with us. Emmanuel. Well, Emmanuel was in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So when they finally entered the promised land, they took the tent right there with them and set it up. And even in the promised land, God never asked for a fancier house than this temporary tent. Come to find out the temporary nature of the worship center was part of the point that God was making. The tabernacle was a temporary solution to an eternal problem. People needed a mobile God to travel with them and be with them. But once they entered the promised land and once Israel was led by kings, one of those kings in particular looked out of the window of his mansion uh, built in cedar and stone and said, God needs one of these. God needs a permanent home. But when David suggested it to God, God said, no, I don't need a temple. I don't want a temple. I have never dwelt in a permanent building. God was fine living in a tent. He seemed to prefer it. It was as if he was saying, I'm fine with my temporary digs. The entire temple system of sacrifice is, is temporary anyway. Then the last thing you people need is a fancy building to show off your local God. I'm not a local God, and you can't house me in a building. And when David asked God to reconsider, God just changed the subject. You're talking about building me a house. I'm going to build you a house. We'll call it the house of David, and it'll go on eternally. Your house has, has forever written all over it, and God promised to make David famous forever. Now let's check. Have you heard of David? All right, God did it. And God also said David was going to have a descendant that would sit on his throne through eternity, and we know that descendants of David. We just celebrated his birthday in Bethlehem, David's hometown. Well, King David never gave up on this idea to build God a majestic temple. He forged ahead to ensure that when his son Solomon became king, everything would be, be in place for construction of a permanent structure. David raised the money, bought the land, drew up the plans, hired the stonecutters. And when Solomon took the throne, the grand construction project began. Twenty years later, it was completed. And King Solomon asked God, to bless it. And God obliged him. But before he blessed it, he said something to Solomon that should have sent chills down his spine. It didn't, but it should have. You'll find God's exact words in 1 Kings chapter 9. It goes something like this. Solomon, I really appreciate all that's gone into creating this fabulous piece of architecture. It really is pretty, and I accept your gift, and I will move in. But Solomon, here's the deal. If I catch you or my people misbehaving out there because you think I'm tucked away safely in here, I will tear this place apart. This piece of real estate will always reflect my power and my glory with or without a building. In its current form, the building reflects my presence and my blessing. 
But if you abandon me to worship other gods, this temple will become a heap of rubble that will also display my power and authority over all things. This prime piece of real estate will stand one way or another as a testimony to me. If I do destroy it, then all who pass by from then on will be appalled and will scoff and ask, what happened? Why did their God tear down his own temple? Well, it's a great talk, and I'd love to tell you that Solomon really took it to heart. But if you read the story, you know that he didn't. He married hundreds and hundreds of idol-worshiping wives, and for each one of them, he built a temple to their God. By the time he was an old man, he was sitting right by uh, his wives in their temples and worshiping their gods. And since the, te- the, the, the Jewish temple was linked to God's conditional, I will as long as you do promise, God tore it down. After that, Israel had a long history of rebuilding and losing it again, a long history of breaking the old covenant for which they paid dearly. All right, that's the Old Testament. Now, we talked about why the New Testament is called the New Testament because of the new that Jesus brought. Now, let's talk about why the Old Testament is called the Old Testament. And the answer is found in the word testament, which is another way of saying covenant. And what is a covenant? Well, you cannot study the Old Testament without running into these These covenants that God made with different individuals and groups. Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David. And most of these Old Testament agreements were conditional upon human behavior. More specifically, obedience or disobedience, cooperation or rebellion. And as much as I want to jump forward into the new covenant that Christ brought, we really need to understand the old ones. Specifically, one Old Testament covenant. Now, if we had time, I'd show you all of them. God's promise to Adam and Eve, uh, the God's promise to the whole creation after the flood, the promises he made to Abraham and Jacob. But these will have to wait for later sermons. For this series, I do, however, want you to have a working knowledge of the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai. Because this covenant is the reason why the Old Testament is called the Old Testament. Now, we find the answer to that question in Exodus chapter 19, where God speaks to Moses. Tell Israel that if they will obey me fully and keep my covenant with them, then they will remain my treasured possession. Then God takes Moses to the mountaintop where he lays out the contract he's ready to sign with Israel. An agreement God is making with an entire nation, like a treaty. Now, recently, I was surprised to learn that that's exactly what the Sinai Covenant was, a treaty. Scholars have noticed that the Sinai Covenant takes on the form of treaties between nation states in that day. The Ten Commands and all the wording of the 613 rules and regulations resemble ancient treaty agreements between nation states in that time in history. There was even a common type of treaty between nations when one of the signatories was much stronger and bigger than the other one. It's called a suzerainty treaty. You don't have to remember that word, but the concept is amazing. Uh, If the two parties were not equal, there was a suzerain, and then there were the vassals. The suzerain does most of the heavy lifting, but the weaker party is also expected to perform. When we find these ancient treaties cut between nations, 
the suzerain provides cover for the vassal. And the vassal pays tribute and demonstrates loyalty to the boss. In Israel's case, with the Sinai Covenant, their promise as the vassal was to obey all of God's commands. And how many were there? It's not a trick question. How many were there? Well, it is kind of a trick question. The cliff notes is 10, but there were actually 613 of them. 613 things you have to obey. Now, when we read the commands, we see a list of rules to obey. When they read the commands, they saw a treaty that they were not to break with a powerful suzerain. Uh, and they couldn't, I mean, who can keep 613 rules? However, this agreement was God's agreement with Israel for a thousand years. When Israel obeyed the rules and come to find out because of the nature of God, he didn't expect them to obey all 613. If they even made an effort, God continued to bless them. Just like a good parent or maybe a grandparent. When you can see the child is just making an effort, that's all you really needed. You know, they didn't mean to totally disobey you. They're making an effort. But then when you, God could see they weren't even making an effort, and specifically in the area of idolatry, they were punished. And that was part of their agreement with God. Shouldn't have been any surprise to them. The, the primary terms and conditions, if you want to look this up, Exodus 19 through 24, where God said, here are the rules. Keep the rules, I'll bless you. Break the rules, I'll punish you. And when Moses finished reading it, the people responded, everything God wants us to do, we will do. But, of course, they didn't. And we shouldn't be surprised. They were at camp. And who keeps the promises that they made at camp? I didn't. And you probably didn't either. Israel broke the Old Covenant over and over. And so the Old Testament gets more and more sad as it moves toward the final book as prophet after prophet speaks out, calling Israel's sins out. And the Old Testament ends with an obvious need for something new. The old was not working it was time for the new to come. And in that final Old Testament prophecy, Malachi predicts when he speaks for God a time where God says, my name will once again be great among the nations. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me and then I myself will come. Suddenly the Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple. The end. The Old Testament ends, Malachi puts down his pen, rolls up the scroll, puts it away, turns out the lights, and disappears into the desert. For the next 400 years or so, there are no more prophecies, no promises, no prayers, no poems, nothing, until Jesus. And as the Apostle Paul will later write, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might re receive adoption to sonship. A humble Jewish carpenter discovers that his virgin fiance is somehow pregnant. An angel appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus, Yeshua, uh, Jehovah's salvation, 
because he will save his people from their sins. That was it. The way it was over. The New Testament or New Covenant is a person, a baby, born in Bethlehem. Eight days later, he's brought to the temple. Twelve years later, we see him there again. And then as an adult, this rabbi comes over and over, bringing the new in contrast to the old. The new that we can recover. The new that we can discover easily. The new that could repair everything that's broken in our world. Jesus came as the new because that's what love required. And this is right where we pick up our story next weekend. Father, we thank you so much for the old. And even though we're going to dive into the New Testament, we will not be among those people who turn our back on the beauty of not just the old covenant, but also the, the whole book that we call our Old Testament. The Jewish law, the prophets, the poems, the prayers, the prophecies, the stories that, that, that really reveal your character in contrast to the human condition. But Lord, as we go into the new, we pray that you would be, make us people that are not trying to live under an old covenant that was never for us, but for the nation of Israel. But we would live under a new testament and a new covenant that Jesus said on that Passover night, this Passover, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it often and remember me. Jesus, we want to remember you throughout this entire series. And we want to thank you that we don't have 613 rules and regulations anymore that we have to follow. We have two. We are to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. We put our faith in you, Jesus, and not in our own ability to keep the rules. Teach us now what we need to know to make our faith solid, unshakable, and irresistible. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.